This episode of 1801 Live was originally recorded during a 12-hour podcast-a-thon streamed live on August 28th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Give Black Podcast-a-thon benefited U of SC's One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which supports initiatives that elevate and encourage black students, faculty, and staff. Together, our five hosts and over 20 guests helped raise more than $10,000 for the campaign over 12 hours. Find more information on the podcast-a-thon and the link to donate at www.garnetmedia.org slash giveblack. But without further ado, we have our first guest, Dr. Michelle Ryan. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Perfect. Hello. Hey, Hannah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <clears throat> I'm having some video issues, so I'm going to chat with you and see if I can fix it on my end. You're so fine. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. I know that uh, you have been involved in many, many different things, but I uh, wanted to first get you on and first say thank you so much for your matching gifts. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the Apple Corps initiative, but I know that uh, already has matched the matching gifts. I'm so excited for that to continue on. If you could talk a little bit about the Apple Corps initiative and why it's near and dear to your heart, that would be great. Sure. So this is a program uh, that we started about three years ago. It was the brainchild of um, Marco Jackson um, and Jennifer Clyburn Reed. And one of the things that we really wanted to try to do was address the teacher shortage that's happening across the country, but in particular in the state of South Carolina. And within that teacher shortage, uh, the lack of uh, teachers of color. Um, and so we were able to develop uh, what we refer to as a comprehensive wraparound program of support uh, for four years for students who predominantly come from um, uh, rural areas. Some of them are first generation, uh, many of them are um, African American, Latino American, um, and we uh, provide some support for them throughout the year. We gather them together um, to uh, greet and meet with um, um, state legislatures, um, um, other people in uh, the education field, policymakers, teachers, superintendents, the whole nine yards. And so part of what we're trying to do is not only expose them to the career, uh, but to the possibility of becoming educational leaders as well. All right. I love it. And I know that you have had a rich history with the university. I know you were here originally, and then you went on to do something amazing, but then came back and found your way back at the University of South Carolina. So if you could just share a little bit about your story of how you started here and how you uh, came back full circle to continue here. Sure, yeah. So I came in 2006 as a junior faculty member straight out of my PhD at the University of North Carolina um, and was really excited about the, the position here. Uh, it was odd. Uh, it was about uh, qualitative research, which was one of my expertise areas, uh, but also somebody who was social foundations of education um, and also knew a little bit about program evaluation. So in my field, I'm a little bit of an odd bird that way um, and was amazed that there was an opportunity for me to bring my full self to the table. And so I uh, started in 06, uh, was here for nine years, um, and then had an opportunity to go and spend some time at Augusta University to become a department chair. Um, and while I was at Augusta, 
there was some significant change at the university in terms of leadership, particularly in my college. Um, and uh, I got wind that uh, my, my new dean, Dr. John Peterson, um, had decided to create a position for an associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and that was kind of right up my alley. It was the kind of work that I was doing uh, right before I left. Um, and so the opportunity to come back um, and do that sanctioned um, and, 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 and be encouraged to do that and expected to do that work was uh, an opportunity I just could not turn down. And so I came back um, in 2017 and uh, have been here ever since. And, uh, you know, despite what's, what's going on um, in the, 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 the world right now, professionally, I have to say that I am, I'm living the proverbial dream. This is, this is exactly what um, I'm supposed to be doing at this moment. And I know you touched on being a professor at one point, but can you just speak to the fact, I know talk to many guests about um, when they were in college or even starting their early careers, they didn't know that where they are is where they would end up. And yeah. so I don't know if you knew that what you would be doing right now would be your dream job or you found that this is your dream job through experience. But can you talk about that process? Absolutely. It's, it's funny you should ask because, you know, uh, had you asked me back then, I'm not supposed to be here. This is not what the game plan was. Um, when I graduated undergrad, uh, I was an African-American history and American history double major um, and was trying to figure out you know, what I wanted to do with that. And, and teaching was um, kind of an afterthought. Um, but when I got into it um, and was allowed to kind of experience being in the classroom uh, with students, I taught uh, high school history. Uh, I was a track and field coach. I was a, a volleyball coach um, and loved it. But part of what I realized while I was teaching was that the subject matter wasn't what mattered to me. It was just being in relationship to kids. It was being in relationship with students. And so when I went back for my PhD, I was actually trying to figure out um, how to become a better teacher. I had always thought that I was going to go back to the school that I came from without really appreciating what a PhD is about and what it's preparing you for. Um, and so once I started getting into the research side and really enjoying that um, and listened to my advisors who said that, you know, they were preparing me to go on to become a professor, um, I decided to listen. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I did. But this, this was not on the radar screen. Now, I will say that one of the, the, I think, defining moments in my trajectory was that I was able to uh, participate in an undergraduate research program um, at the University of North Carolina, where I did my undergrad. Um, and that really exposed me to thinking about research as something that I didn't realize people could do as a career. Um, you know, I, I spent a summer hanging out in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., looking over Freedmen's Bureau records because I was trying to understand what was the experience of African-American women um, after slavery, trying to reconnect with their families, children who had been sold away from them. Where did they go for recourse? Where did they go for information about how to try to uh, reconstitute their family? Um, and so when I found out that, you know, there was a career in that for me, um, I think that that was um, a game changer. Uh, because up until that point, I hadn't given any consideration to the academy. I know you mentioned um, research, and I know that you have experience even teaching introductory research um, courses, but can you give a little bit of background on the importance of minorities 
taking advantage of research, especially undergraduate research opportunities. I feel like there is a lack um, within the research department of minorities taking advantage of these opportunities, especially at the University of South Carolina. And I know that you probably can attest to that. And so seeing oftentimes I feel that being in the shoes of a student, many students are not even aware that that's something that they can take a hold of or that's something that is in their alley to where they can accomplish and be successful at. So could you just um, relay some information about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of those things where you don't even really need to know um, what it is you want to study. You don't even need to have a passion uh, at this level of the game. Just dip your toe in. Take advantage of some of these opportunities to serve as an undergraduate researcher. If you've got a professor um, who has lit your world on fire in terms of the topic um, that, that they were teaching in the course that you were in, approach them and ask them what kind of research that they are engaged in. Uh, and likely, they will put an arm around you and bring you into this fold that is this in incredible world of discovery, this incredible world of spending your time um, doing things that, that you probably already enjoy. Like, this is something that I enjoy. I love talking to people. I love hearing what their story is. Um, and so, quite frankly, as a qualitative researcher, that's my job. My job is to uh, engage with folks, uh, to listen to their experiences so that I can better understand uh, a particular challenge or problem that's happening in the world um, and how that problem is manifesting in their lives, right? And then my responsibility is to bring that understanding um, to the public eye through, through various uh, uh, publication outlets, journals, um, uh, podcasts. So um, yeah, don't, don't, don't uh, be discouraged if you think that you might want to try um, figuring out this research thing, but you don't know what you want to study. Um, borrow somebody else's idea for a, for a little bit, follow that, and then you will, you will discover what it is that drives your passions. That's great. And then pivoting now to your role within DE&I, uh, just how has that been, especially during the times that we're living in right now? I know that I had the pleasure of seeing you speak and speaking with you at a round table, but just how has that been and how have you, um, how have you maintained within that role um, your mental health, but also advocating and doing the best that you can in your role? Oh, that's a great question. So um, let me go with the mental health first, Hannah, because I think right now, you know, I was talking to the college the other day, we had our all college meeting, and I said that I think that um, in part, part of the tension that we're going to have to, to walk this year is this, the fine line between holding people accountable um, for engaging in racial justice work, for anti-racist work, and also being understanding when that particular individual who you would really want to work with doesn't have the bandwidth, right? Because they're caring for kids, they're homeschooling, uh, they've got their own classes, uh, they're caring for, uh, uh, they're doing some elder care, right? And so we're going to have to walk a, a very fine uh, a line between um, making sure that we show up, making sure that we stand up, but when I'm exhausted and I can't do it today, Hannah, I need for you to step in for me, right? And when you're exhausted and you can't do it today, I'll go ahead and stand in for you, right? So I think that's the tension that we're going to have to kind of navigate this year. Um, but in terms of DE and I stuff, wow, the world is on fire. Um, and part of what we are trying to do, particularly in the College of Education, 
is a better job of making sure that our students graduate with uh, a significant level of racial literacy. Uh, when I was working with uh, the U101 instructors this summer, um, part of what I, you know, I had to share with them is that it, it, I'm surprised in 2020 that we are where we are, um, but I'm also not surprised because at the end of the day, there's nowhere in the K through 12 curriculum nor in the higher education curriculum where you are asked or expected to take a class that allows you access to conversations around race, that allows you to have research-based definitions in terms of how you understand the world, that gives you a race conscious rather than a colorblind lens. Um, and so by and large, um, this is the opportunity before us for people to dig deep, um, to look for resources and to begin to understand what our uh, accountability is, uh, particularly as educators, uh, as counselors, as superintendents of schools, as principals, uh, every single one of us uh, has an obligation to make sure that we are racially literate and that we're leading that work. We're encouraging teachers uh, not to be afraid. Uh, you know, it, it makes me think of the work that my colleague uh, Gloria Bouti is doing um, down in her Center for the uh, Education and Excellence of uh, uh, Equity, excuse me, of African-American students, uh, where she invites us, uh, teachers from across the districts here um, to better understand um, the lived experiences, particularly of black and brown students um, and the ways in which they can build their capacity uh, to make sure that they are um, championing those kids, making sure that they have what they need, standing in as an advocate, um, and some of the teachers that she works with are just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and so I think about it across the, you know, there's a, there's a role for us to play um, at, the, at the early childhood level. There's a role for us to play in K through 12 education. There's a huge role for us to play uh, in higher education, right? So throughout this entire pipeline, we need more people standing up and showing up, calling out white supremacy when you see it, how it manifests in, in policies and practices, uh, uh, and helping us to move towards uh, the 2020, 2022, 2025 uh, that we actually want to live fully in. Um, just to piggyback off of a point that you made about accountability and also making sure that you're, um, hey, <laughs> um, piggybacking off of that point about accountability, making sure that people are taking care of themselves mentally, um, First off, definitely relate um, just based off of the past couple of weeks that we've had and the protests that we've had and the people on campus. I can remember telling my roommate the other day um, when I saw people talking about it on social media, I was like, oh, God, uh, I really hope that nobody needs me to be out there because I, I can't like yeah. today is just I just can't yeah. I can't be out there. I can't be representing AAAS right now. Like I just physically cannot. Um, yeah. And I remember being anxious and nervous that people were going to be like, okay, well, the AAA's president wasn't out there. Like, that's part of her job. Like, why wasn't she out there making sure that she was advocating for us? Yeah. So I guess my question is, um, one, like, how would you recommend that we, as student leaders, try to cushion that burnout, I guess yeah. you could say? So like, oh, for example, other members on my exec board, one of my exec board members is a sophomore. Like, I would hate for him to feel like I feel now in his sophomore year. So how do I increase the longevity, I guess, of the student leaders that I have under my wing now um, as an exec board? Right. It's, it's about growing capacity, right? It's about making sure 
that there are enough folks to carry that message, particularly our white colleagues, right? We can't, we can't be doing this work all the time. Um, it, it really can be soul snatching, okay? It can be debilitating. And so I uh, really enjoy being around the colleagues that I have because I know that they're going to be raising issues of equity and access and justice and social justice when I'm not in the room, right? Um, and so if, to the extent that you can build amongst your own collective, right, the folks that you wanna get in good trouble with, uh, if you can build that number, right, then you can be more strategic about how you spend your time. So there may be a reason where you need to be the one to show up for this particular meeting, for this particular engagement and give the message. And there may be another time when Hannah needs to be the one. And there might be another time um, when uh, uh, our, our student body president, Izzy, needs to be the one, right? So thinking more strategically about the ways in which you deploy your resources, because your time and your energy are all the resources that you have. Thank you for that insight. And just to piggyback, I have heard many guests talk about their advice and even their experiences as a student, a student leader advocating for change. So whether that is through uh, demonstrations, if that is through marching or even getting everyone to the table in order to lay out a case of why we want these changes and the reason yeah. why they need to happen. Yeah. But do you have any advice for students on how we can be, um, I guess, key stakeholders, because our stakeholders I know in the university, but also uh, feel as if we have the power to make tangible changes and how can we take the steps to go about that? Absolutely. I'm so glad that you asked. That's been a theme for today. I've been listening to the advice that, that folks have been given. One of the things I think about, and I have to go back to what others said earlier, is that students underestimate how much power they actually have. And so there is a way in which um, faculty, particularly those of us who are kind of committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, get muted, right? If I say that, that something uh, needs to take place um, and uh, we need to address a particular uh, uh, policy or issue, people go, well, of course Shell's gonna say that, that's her job, right? And so in a lot of ways, um, it's about thinking about um, whose voice is going to, to, to carry the message like I was talking about earlier. So for students, use the relationships that you have with faculty um, to ask hard questions. One, we're expecting you to do it, right? We want y'all to be critical thinkers. Um, but if you happen to be in a course, for example, and you realize that all of the texts that you're reading are by white authors, ask a critical question. As to, so I see um, that we don't have any authors of color um, can I make a suggestion? Because here's what I've learned about being in leadership, friends. Um, if you're going to bring people a problem, you need to bring them a solution as well, right? Um, and so let's say, you know, you, you have come across a particular author who, is a, who could probably fit into your syllabus. They're not there. Share that with a faculty member in a respectful way, um, because sometimes it's not, it's, it's not about the conscious. We're not consciously trying to engage in what we would, you know, say, colonizing our syllabi. Um, but it happens, and unless somebody puts it in front of our faces uh, and encourages us to think differently, um, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. So we can get that kind of critique from uh, our colleagues. We can get that kind of critique from our supervisors. But coming from a student, coming from somebody who's standing at the university and entrusting us as faculty uh, with their careers, with their futures, it means a lot. 
um, student course evaluations as problematic as some of those things can be. Um, the way that certain students use those to abuse those of us who want to talk about some things that they don't want to talk about, um, they can still be extremely useful in providing feedback, right? So there are multiple, um, a variety of ways. Partner with um, some of the faculty organizations, right? I would love to see uh, some more connection between uh, the Black Faculty Caucus who are meeting as we speak, right, this moment, um, and the uh, African American Student Association. We need to know you all. You all need to know us uh, in a more um, substantive and intimate ways. Because we have some ideas about things that we could do together. Um, but we might need y'all to lead that a little bit, and then we'll come behind, right? Uh, and then we'll switch roles from time to time. So I think uh, in collaboration, there's a lot of things that we could get done. Yes, ma'am. I agree. And I will definitely be reaching out to you. Okay, great. I love it. I feel like throughout the day, we rekindled old relationships or we started new ones. And so I think that is a great thing without the day. It's all about passing on the work and the legacy. So seeing all that everyone has done, everyone has contributed, yeah. it's really inspiring for us saying, okay, especially now during this time, what can we do? Can we do? All, right. But also keeping in mind that we are just one individual in and of itself to where that balance of what can we do, don't overextend, yeah. do what you can do and rely on others by building this connect work or network so that they can also do their part as well. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's, it's powerful times. I'm grateful. I'm fortunate enough to be um, in my office in the College of Education. I think one of the only fully all staffed offices of Office of uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Um, so in, in addition to myself, uh, uh, Margot Jackson has been my partner in crime for the last three years. She's the director of student diversity. Uh, we also have Preston Thorne, who is our uh, outreach coordinator and student success coach. Um, and so, you know, our dean has really invested in this work in ways that allow us um, to, again, divide and conquer, right? And so Margot has played a, a really important role in supporting our students, particular undergraduate students, uh, running multiple programs. So I entrust her to make sure that if there are any issues specifically for students that need to be on my radar, that she'll bring that to me. But while she's got that going on, I'm paying attention to some of the more uh, faculty and staff related uh, issues uh, and trying to support them to moving that work forward, right? And so there's always a role for, for everybody. We could not um, do half of the work that we do without our, our, our administrative assistant, Nikki Smira, um, who just holds it down. Uh, when I am out, uh, you know, championing the, the Council of Academic Diversity Officers or what have you, I'm not worried about what's going on back in my office, right? And so, you know, one of my, my closest colleagues and favorite friends, Dr. Dr. Toby Jenkins, who you had on earlier, um, said something that has stuck with me for weeks. She said, budgets are moral documents. I don't know if she reminded y'all of that this, this morning or not, um, but you put your money where your mouth is, right? And so this is what this campaign is about. And you uh, moved me almost to tears in that meeting that we were in toge uh, together uh, when you said that this campaign represented for you one of the first times that you felt like your university saw you. That was profound for me. Um, and it made me it affirmed for me that I'm at the right place at the right time and that there is much more work to do because if you've been here for what, two, three years now? Yes, starting my third year. 
for you to feel that way this late in the game means we have dropped the ball significantly, right? Um, and so thank you for that. Thank you for that honesty um, and, and, and a place where there were powerful voices listening um, because they needed to understand that. Um, and so there's, there's work to go all around, but I think that um, in this moment, what gets me excited is that we have the right leadership and the right faculty to do, to get in good trouble in ways that will fundamentally change what this place looks like uh, for generations to come. Absolutely. Well, we're ready. We're ready. I'm so excited. I feel like also another theme has been hope being refueled by the day and re-energized to yeah. do to do what needs to be done. But a last question, I know we only have five minutes left, but and I know you touch on the Apple Corps initiative. Yes, um, I can talk about that all day. <laughs> right, but just how, and I know you said put your money or put your money where your mouth is, yeah. but any other um, actionable items from a university perspective, right? So putting on that hat of um, leading the university within um, DE&I alongside Julian and Dr. Uh, Jenkins and many, many more individuals. How do you see or how do you envision us um, continuing to progress with everything at hand um, in order to enhance the diversity, equity, inclusion, not just in the office or within the office, but all across the board at the university? It's, a, it's, a, it's gonna be a two-pronged approach for me, Hannah. On one hand, you have um, the, the significant foot push, uh, particularly uh, by President Kaslin, to see that the number of African-American students and other students of color who hit the university starts to look a little bit more like our representation in the state, right? And so there's gonna be some heavy recruitment issues um, and challenges that we're going to have to do. And that work is critically important because as uh, uh, Julian uh, pointed out earlier uh, in a meeting that I was in with him, um, the, the, the number of students of color that are coming to campus in the next four to five years is gonna increase significantly, right? I'm pleased about that. But in the meantime, we need to get our home in order. We need to get this house right so that the students who arrive here know that they are wanted, that they will be supported, that we have their backs, that we're gonna make sure that they matriculate and that they don't have to wait until their junior year to feel like we see them and we support them, right? So there are things that we need to do at home to make this university uh, feel a bit more inclusive. Uh, there's some policies and practices that, that we wanna to look at and revisit um, and, and, and talk honestly about the ways that perhaps this has the way, been the way that, that, that we do it now um, but we might need some changes, right? Um, I, I'll be completely honest. I am. I know it's a challenge uh, for the folks in the admissions office, and I thank them for the labor that they're putting in this year in terms of trying to find additional evidence uh, of, of, of students' goodness that make them worthy of coming to the University of South Carolina outside of standardized test scores. Um, but that's a change that I would like to see made permanent. Um, if we take a look at the, the history uh, of how test scores have been used uh, across the country, particularly in the state of South Carolina, you know, we know that we were the, one of the institutions that uh, first adopted the SAT for the specific purpose of keeping uh, black and brown students out of the institution, right? So that legacy is with me. So my frustration around standardized tests 
um, is not just about uh, the metrics, so to speak. It's about the legacy of what they're intended to do. And we know good and well that there is additional evidence uh, that, will, uh, that we can tap into. It may take a little bit more time, a little bit more energy, a little bit more resources, uh, but I think those are some of the fundamental changes uh, that are well within uh, the grasp of the institution um, that, 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 that will bring about the change that I think that we're looking for. And so I'm excited. I see you know, it's, it's a difficult time, but I keep seeing possibility around the corner. And uh, I think that's what, that's, what, that what, that's what feeds me joy. Well, Dr. Brian, we appreciate you for coming. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all this wisdom. You've got wheels in my brain turning already. Um, I look forward to speaking with you at a later Absolutely. date as Please well. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, y'all have a great rest of the, uh, the uh, podcast. Uh, Hannah, I'm yeah. just... Has, have you had bathroom breaks, my love? I'm, I'm a little worried. Are you oh, good? Oh, I mean, I'm good. I haven't had to go, but I am good, uh, surprisingly. Good. I mean, we have, I think the 24-hour podcast of thought prepped me for this mm -hmm. moment of a gotcha. 12, so I, now gotcha. I'm like, 12 is nothing, but I can see how that, you know, I know the comments have been going crazy. I'm fine, God. We're raising money for this cause. Yes. I'm just listening so and learning. You're in it to win it. I'm in it to win. I hear it. <laughs> I signed up for 12. <laughs> All right. Well, the best to the both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great day. Take care.